This is Joshua Bell with the Kilt and the Cloth, and this is my Tuesday morning Bible study as we continue the study of Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we pick today in chapter 7, verse 7, um, and we continue on the Sermon on the Mount. And there's just a lot of cool stuff going on today that I just uh, hopefully we'll get out of the Sermon on the Mount, but we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, so we, we ended last week's session with really just kind of this conversation about um, these ideas of justice and the, the, the ways that justice is not being carried out. So then it's going to switch gears here at this place where we're getting to the end of the sermon. And my 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 favorite part of this part of the section is, is that it becomes the worship moments. Um, like, let's look for God in everything that we do. Then there's the golden rule. Then there's the conversation about what it is that we do and if it bears fruit. Um, but there is some beautiful eschatological uh, moments there. Again, I want to remind you that eschatology, eschatology is the study of the end. doesn't mean it's today or tomorrow. It, is, it might even be in the future, but the end of a time. So um, eschatology is spelled E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y. Again, E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y. L-O-G-Y. It means the end of a time. We've always talked about it as the end of time, but really it's it's the end of an era, if you want. Um, like the end of the Mesopotamian era. Yeah, like the end of the Mesopotamian era, Persian era, the Persian era, the Assyrian Empire, the Roman Empire. This is the goal of Matthew is truly to say Rome is doomed because God will reign fully and and that jesus is going to be the new emperor like that's that's the goal here in matthew and and um so the end of time passages which are fascinating in matthew because for example in mark he takes a whole chapter we call it the little apocalypse it's mark chapter 13 the end of the empire has happened but it's really in the midst of trauma and pain so they're talking about the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem. They're talking about all the stuff going away. Matthew does like little eschatological snippets throughout the entire gospel. Like at the end of this era, this is what's going to happen. And at the end of this era, this is what's going to happen. But ultimately, if you took all of them and put them in, this, in one chapter, right, it would be, it would make sense, which is really fascinating. If you took all the eschatological statements in Matthew and made, made your own chapter of just those, it would actually make sense. Like, um, so next week's lesson? Huh? Next week's lesson? Sure, it could be next week's lesson. <laughs> we take all of them and put them together. Here's what's going to happen. And, it, and it'll, it'll sound similar to Mark 13 and the revelation of John. Um, so uh, this, is a, this is a common practice of writing at the time. Um, the goal being that something better has to happen from today, you know? Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's okay. So there's an eschatological passage that we're going to read today. 
Um, Dr. Carter spends a, a lot of time on it in his commentary, um, mainly because, uh, and besides the fact that he's a Matthew scholar, the his his focus really is about this idea, and, and from what I've been able to gather, his focus is when we look at it through the first century lens, you can't avoid eschatology, and for them, it's everything. Um, it's the way that Paul writes. He's anxious. He's um, in a hurry. You know, tomorrow Jesus could come back. You need to be prepared, right? Um, Matthew writes in this same kind of way, but really in more of a, and when the empire falls and we get to say nana nana boo boo as Jesus becomes the Roman emperor, you know, um, it's not Roman emperor, but the emperor of the world. Like that's a, that's a big deal. Yeah. I was just going to ask only because of being to several funerals. To me, it almost applies the same as a funeral. Yeah. I mean, you're, of back up your life is however good or bad it is right now is not what we're working towards i mean right there there will be an end of that time is what i'm trying to say yes and then there will be a better world yes i i uh when i was teaching uh most teachers referred to that when the kids got out of junior high <laughs> the last day of school. That's right. There'll be an ending to mourning and crying and pain. And uh and then they will be gone and they will be in high school. We don't have to worry about them anymore. All right. When Dwayne was 15, I wasn't sure he was gonna live to be 16. Right. Right. I was not sure he was gonna live to be 16. And then when he was 18, he left home. It's like, oh, I miss this guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that that's part of the thing. So does it tie into the abomination of desolations? And I'm not so sure what the abomination of desolations even is. That's a great question. Um, so I want to make sure I get some more context from where you're coming from. So like, was that something that you heard in a sermon? Something that I read just this morning in Matthew 24. In Matthew, the chapter 24? Yes. Okay, so the, the vomit, that's another eschatological passage. Okay. Um, and so these... And when we get there, it'll make a lot more sense. But just to give you a, a taste, as, as Matthew continues, after we get out of the Sermon on the Mount, he puts a lot of emphasis on parables. Like, here's how we do these things. And this is why. And he tells you a story. And then there's going to be judgment, right? So there's got to be the human interaction within the Pharisees and the Sanhedrins. So by the time he gets to chapter 24, the abominations of desolate and desolations or other desolations that language is literally about the abomination of what we do in the name of god and how we are desolated from everything else how we have been um we have uh, trying to figure out we have we have made our understanding of god an abomination and we have lifted up Rome as the Holy Roman Empire, not as Rome being underneath the empire of God. Does that help? Okay. So yeah, it, it's it's hard <laughs> because I, I, I'm only saying that because in the 20th century, we put such an emphasis on eschatology in a different way, right? We, we hear 
Darby Nelson talking about dispensationalism and how the end of time we can predict and prophesy and book of revelation then becomes instead of a, a, a guidebook, it becomes a, um, a fortune telling book. Like it's going to happen. Here's the signs you need to watch out for. And revelation was designed to say in our pain, in our grief, this is what happened. Don't let this happen to you. But what we preached it as after Darby Nelson did it, we created phrases like rapture and tribulation and pre-trib and post-trib. And again, I, I, I like all of these discussions. Um, but in the first century church, they didn't pay attention to that stuff. Um, and so why, why I was asking that, Karen, is, is that sometimes those words also from scripture get used into that dispensationalist world. And again, I don't have a problem with it. I mean, that's that's how that group of people believe and praise God that God spoke to them that way. For me, I hear it a different way, but that doesn't mean that we can't have conversation and dialogue. That's why I had to ask because abominations and desolations, I was like, where's that at? And you said Matthew 24. Oh yeah, yeah, that's that place. That's, that's that place where it comes in the crosses over. And I think you could take that... You know, I was saying if you take all the eschatological passages in Matthew, that's towards the end of the chapter of abomination or a uh, eschatology for Matthew. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. When the Left Behind series came out in the seventies, uh, early sixties, seventies, I don't know what it was exactly. Um, my my Christian mentor did not want me to read them, not because uh, the they said content, but she said that she didn't think that it was completely accurate as to what was going to happen in the end times and so she only told me to read them so of course i read all of them oh right <laughs> <laughs> it's fiction you know yeah. kind of based on yeah well you'd be surprised how many people adhere to that like that the left behind series is a prophetic book like that that lahe had some sort of divine inspiration that god gave him these words oh, and I and it's scary. I mean, not scary, but I mean, like the words on his pages are scary. How do they discount Jesus saying that you're not going to know when? I mean, um, very easily. That just to they me just is, don't worry about that one. They just don't worry me, about it. That would mean more than everything written in Revelation. I mean, if I was just going to take, you know, which one to believe in, right? I'd, I'd rather I'd rather believe what Jesus said than what somebody else wrote, even with you know, their input, God's input, yeah, Jesus' input. But I still, you know, I'd rather believe somebody that was close or my, or did hear what Jesus said as opposed to... Somebody in a prison island in Patmos. Yeah. That, <laughs> outside well, of it wasn't Some, even him now, so... <laughs> right, right. And, and I like knows. Revelation after I get past all of the... all of to, It'd be a great movie in today's world because of CGI. Once right. you get past all of that, then, well, then I, I'm, I can handle it better. But the, the I, I have to address this before we read this passage of scripture, because eschatology is one that gets used a lot um, in, in a lot of different ways, specifically about the end of times, right? Or the end of time. Um, there's... I would suggest that part of the reason that we struggle with it is, is that we don't proof text Bible passages. 
And proof texting is a practice that has been going on around since the 19th century that says, well, Jesus wept, John 11, verse 35. So Jesus wept, and then what that is to say, well, Jesus wept because you didn't pay your offering. Jesus wept because you didn't come to church on Sunday. Jesus wept because you looked at somebody bad and you're a bad person. And they take that one little verse, and then that's what their sermon's based off of. Um, and that proof texting becomes dangerous. The problem with it is, is those other faith traditions, other faith traditions um, tend to live there. And they'll, they'll just say, this passage's text speaks to me this way, so this is how it should speak to all of you. Um, and if you don't like it, well, uh, you're going to go to hell anyway. And, and you could go to those sinful churches down the street. And I'm, and I'm being very flippant about it, but at the same time, it's really true. Um, and, but we, we try very hard not to do that. We, we want, I specifically want you to take the whole book into context. I want you to take the sociology written at that time into context. I want all of those things put together in such a way that you have the ability to go. And now that I know and I've read the whole book of the Gospel of Matthew, this is what it means to me versus, well, the Great Commission, you know. And, and where I struggle is simply that all these show us this date. Right. Because you get in the Old Testament and there's prophets everywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, so you're sitting there going, well, Jesus said you're not going to know. Then these prophets were all, why are they even in there? Because they wouldn't have known. And I would argue I mean, that they're writing eschatological also. This is going to be the end of this time. And and we've we've used hebrew bible prophets to prove jesus stuff uh not that i necessarily have a huge problem with that you know but this idea that eschatology goes all the way through the hebrew bible also like isaiah we know that he's talking about cyrus you know, like at one point but we've turned cyrus into jesus a couple times um and, and that's just the way that we know it historically but it's Handel's fault because he put all that Messiah. Yes. Isaiah's death in the Messiah. It's right. She's absolutely right. We we did it with music. We did it with worship. We did it with lectionary text, with liturgy. Uh, Handel absolutely put all kinds of Isaiah texts in uh, Messiah. And and that's how they taught. You know, that's, that's how they were brought up. That's what Matthew is. I had to go back and look, but Matthew is proving the prophets of the Old Testament. That's right. Are, are, That's his whole job. I mean, and they're like, we don't do that. You know, so it's it's a fascinating passage, and I'm glad we're having it because uh, this this has this the narrow gate passage is only two verses or three verses, I think, and it's as eschatological as you can get. Well, let's let's uh, let's start reading. Um, ask. And verse 7, ask and it will be given you, search and you will find, knock and the door will be opened for you, for everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and for everyone who knocks the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you, or if your child asks for bread, will give you a stone? Or if the child asks for a fish, will give a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is a really good example of a proof texting passage. Uh, I've heard this used in a stewardship moment that said that if I ask God for a million dollars, God's going to make me a million millionaire for Jesus. Um, that's not how the 
it works, but this, this passage is used a lot in prosperity gospel uh, churches. Um, I, I need a new jet, so. Right, I, I literally do. I, if, I, I don't, if I don't get a new jet, I'm gonna, God's going to take me home. That's right. That's <laughs> Hallelujah. Right. How, how do I, how do I, so I'm saying, how do I, how do I go minister to all these people in, around the world with a, without an $85 million jet? So, um, and then it's fascinating. He says this and then follows it up with, and everything do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. Um, yeah, we don't need to go through that again unless you need to. I have a story on this one. When I was little, about Bo's age, my next door neighbor was a biter, and she would bite me all the time. Uh -huh. And and she went over, was playing with her, and she she bit me, and almost drew blood. She bit me so hard. And I went home crying, and my mom says, "Now I'm tired of this. She said, you get back and let you bite her back." So this is her telling me the story because I don't remember it, but. I went back over there and I looked at the little girl on my finger. I said, oh, I'm going to do just like the Bible says. You hope to do it to others just like they do to you. So you hope still because I'm going to bite you. <laughs> <laughs> just like the Bible says. Do it others just like they do to just, you. Just like the Bible says. And she screamed and jumped up and ran into her house. I never bit her and she never bit me again. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That'll work. <laughs> but uh, that was my four year old version of the Bible. I'll take it. <laughs> Well, it's funny you should say that because this next part is the eschatological part. So after she bit the lady or scared her, uh, took off running. Uh, now, now we enter in through the narrow gate. Uh, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life and there are few who find it. Now, um, Dr. Carter spends like three pages on this. <laughs> Um, and so on this specific passage, and I, and I want to read just the, the summarized version of what he has. He says, the two ways metaphor are commonly expressed options for faithful or faithless living, which you would find in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 30. One is the way of discipleship is not popular or easy. It is countercultural, but it leads to... Uh, sharing in God's life. In the inscriptions and images uh, on a gate were often instruments of Roman imperial propaganda. Roads ensured military and economic control, but these verses call disciples to God's alternative ways of service and life, which is fascinating. When you go to Jerusalem at all of the gates, um, there is a, excuse me, there's these um, images above each of the gates. So like there's the, uh, the lion's gate, the lamb's gate, the narrow gate that's, that really existed. The dung gate. The gun, dung gate. Yeah, the dung gate. There's these images above each of them. And now look, I, I don't, I, I don't want to give you guys propaganda, but it was, it was interesting to me. The tourist guides, plural, definition of the images above each of those gates. While we were talking with our tourist guide, he would say, this is where the Roman legion such and such would be. And this is their gate to, to guard. Um, and then he'd say on this gate, this is the, the legion, different legion, because they're huge. 
and this is a big geographical area. This is where they would camp out. And it was kind of fascinating. But then <laughs> we're sitting right there and I, uh, you all know me. So I had this ADD moment and he's talking and there's another tourist guy over here is talking about, uh, and he's speaking Italian and he's talking about the same gates and says uh, something completely different. That this was art artisans that came from the Crusaders that decided that these images were biblical. So therefore, he put them above each of these gates, and and so I just I stopped him, and I and I walked over to the Italian tourist guy and and freaked out my professor. But I I I started asking him. I said, so you're you're saying that these were created by the crusaders and he's like see see crusader and he goes on to this whole thing and he explains it to me and then so i go back to our tourist guide who's still talking to my group and whatever and um and and i said so what do you think about the crusaders oh that's just a myth um but almost 90 percent of people historians especially will tell you that these images were designed specifically as propaganda for the ruling power of the time. So the Italian was right, because the, the Jerusalem that would have been there in Matthew's era was gone. It was torn to the ground. The Italian was right in the sense that the Crusaders came and they built it back up, put it back together. And so those images above the doors were completely different. Which gate? Uh, didn't matter at that point. No, I meant which gate did you go through? We were at the li uh, Lion's Gate. No, the Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate, because the Lion's Gate is closed. This one boarded up because that's the Jewish that's right. prophecy. Yeah, and so that one's totally shut. Oh, that's the Golden Gate. Golden Gate. Golden yeah. Gate's closed, but the, the Lion's Gate's right next to it. So uh, we went through the Lion's Gate on one side and the Sheep Gate on this, but we were at the Sheep Gate right over by... Um, the Church of St. Helen, that's Constantine's mom. Um, so it was kind of fascinating. And I like what he's saying here, this narrow gate. The, the point of it is, is that story in Deuteronomy that you have a choice of discipleship. You have the choice to go down the long and road, hard road to follow God, or you could choose to go down the, the short and easy one to not. Um, it, it's it's a... Uh, to me, it's an archaeological evidence of uh, truly embracing the culture of the time. Narrow gates and narrow passageways were also uh, built to keep invading armies from efficiently entering the cities. I mean, you go to some of those medieval cities and... Very narrow gates. Yeah, there. I mean, you Few people can go through any country. armies can't get through there. Horses can't go in at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it would be, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is it would be good news that Rome with their massive roads built to quickly move soldiers from point A to point B fast wouldn't be able to, if you go down the narrow road. Yeah. You know, it would be difficult. <clears throat> bother you well and it makes sense but and it's and, and to him this is the eschatol eschatology there's going to be a time when those roads are completely accessible to you who follow the path of god 
Does that make sense? I know I ask that question a lot, but uh, and the narrow gate is narrow in Greek, right? Narrow, straightened, contracting. And only if you find it. And if, only if you find it. So would that would that lead credence to the the denominations that believe that five thousand are going to be saved in this all or whatever the number is? This this contradicts that language. Yeah. It contradicts it because it's just only a few. Yeah, because we, we don't have a number here. Yeah, that's true. Um, so let's keep going. Where what, in Deuteronomy does that refer back to? Uh, 30 verses 15 to 30. <clears throat> the narrow gate is, it's, is similar to the story of the camel to the eye of the needle. Yes. Somewhere, at some point, sometime, once only, I heard, and I think it was in a sermon, that the eye of the needle was an actual physical place. It is. Okay, and, and it, was in, it was a narrow path. It is. And when they got to it, they had to take the camels around because they couldn't get to That's it. right. There's a camel gate right off to the I side of it. I heard that at one time, and I never had heard anybody else say anything about it. So um, right near where the west wall is, what we call the Wailing Wall, uh, there was a narrow gate that you physically had to walk through to get to it because the temple would have been off to your right. There's this path that you take up to the temple. Well, animals weren't allowed in the temple, right? So the, you would walk long. through this. Huh? <laughs> not, for not, for very very long. not for very long. Right. They were they not camels. <laughs> the camels weren't used as offerings. So you walk through this narrow gate and, the, and your servants would take it through this uh, camel gate, which just so coincidentally happens to be right off to the side. And nastily, the dung gate was just on the just down a little bit further. Uh, uh, just coincidentally, the big animals were nearby the dung gate. Well, it's this crazy concept. And so, um, sheep gate just happens to go out into the fields. That's right. She literally does. The sheep gate's right there, and it's right next to the fields. It's it's brilliant how they did it. But so yeah, the eye of the needle. That needle gate is it's a it's a very small narrow passage. And I say small, you're not going to get a, a camel through it. You know, uh, you're going to get a, a nine foot tall uh, philistine through it, no problem. But not a camel. Um, so let's keep going. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Again, here you got your images of Rome. Wolves always portray uh, uh, Rome in some way or another. You will know them by their fruits or grapes gathered from their thorns or figs from thistles. In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit. But the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree, tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Right there. What is the word for fire? Is it Gehenna? Um, I think it's poor. P-Ypsilon uh, pro. Yeah, that would be poor. So that's his fire. I think that was, I think I'm using another passage in my head for that. Okay. That's okay. Thus you will know them by their fruits. It's got to be in Mark. So there's this uh, passage. It's the Mark inversion of this passage, I think, is just that when you take all the bad, no, that's a different passage altogether. You take all the bad branches, you throw them in the, in the fire, the pits of uh, Gehenna, engines of being translated as Hades. It's literally a fire pit right outside of Jerusalem. 
that burned all day long and burned everything. That's not the same fire here. They obviously never picked blackberries, huh? They did not pick blackberries. <laughs> they did not. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only one who does the will of my Father in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. Um, yeah, this is kind of an awesome passage, but not really a lot to say there other than the fact that... Um, We've known people that have used God's name to find success uh, in whatever way, and they knew nothing actually about the, the love of God. Um, you know what I mean by that? <coughs> There's um, I don't, just places that would advertise that they're a Christian company that still charging more than need to be charged for something and that kind of thing. I think that kind of goes into telemarketers. I mean, televangelists. There are, um, there are televangelists. There were, that... there, were those, there, were, there were those that were good too, but there were those that were <clears throat> for profit. Um, yeah. Um, well, my question on this is, I've always, you know, the once saved, always saved. It seems to contradict that. Um, that, that if you do things in God's name, but then take it on to yourself to become, you become more popular than God, then he didn't know you. And I've never heard, I mean, how does that reconcile itself there? Um, on a sermon base, I think, if I was to preach that message, Pam, I think I would start off with the idea that they will, they will know you by your works. Right, like if I'm going to send to heaven, so the works don't get you into heaven, right? It's all very confusing, especially it is. just the kids. Well, and, yeah. Paul, and Paul and Paul goes back and back and forth. He says they they'll know you by your works, but works without faith is dead. And if you do faith without works, it's dead. So he says the, the exact same thing over and over again, circle. But I think the the thing here that Matthew's trying to bring up is, is that there are these people, these town criers, that are doing all of these things because God's power is so mighty. That literally a complete person who knows nothing about God can cast out demons and do all of these things um, without uh, even knowing who God is. Yes. Yeah, there's a story about this guy by the name of Apollos who does who does all of these things in the name of God. And Jesus says, get away from me. You know, just, I don't know who you are. Um, that's I think that's more where he's going. For us, it's harder because we have more people that claim God and Jesus for financial gain um, that have become very financially successful. Politicians that and go to church, church right before elections. Politicians <laughs> who go to church right before sure elections. I do appreciate there was a, a, a major company that advertised on TV never mentioned that they were a Christian-based company, but they had a fish in their symbol. And I thought I could I could live with that. They were identifying with a group of people, but they weren't they were cashing in on that necessarily. Right. You know, I, I could identify with that, and I understood that. But uh, when, when you see the the politicians that only go to church on the election years and that kind of thing, and yeah. that's what he's warning about. Yeah, 
So I think that's your that's your connection. So if I was going to preach it, I would go there. I think you see, I think in the Roman Empire of the first century, you see senators doing all kinds of great stuff. You see these governors doing all these wonderful things um, with the people. And then as soon as they win, which they didn't really get to vote, but we'll just tell them they did. But once it was all said and done, uh, and then they raised their taxes even more. So they were already starving, but sorry, guys, we need more money. Um, we have a we have a temple, we have a castle that we need to build. It's literally going to overshadow the temple. Sorry, guys, you're just going to have to pay for it. So, um, so which then Matthew just geniusly follows up by the hearers and the doers of the word passage. Everyone who then hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and the beat against the house and it fell and great was its fall. Now, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching for he taught them as having a, as one having authority and not as their scribes. Uh, And that was it. It seems like if you was an apostle and you could do all that, it would be very difficult to not become a little bit, look what I did. I mean, yeah. And especially with the people doing right here what they, and they were amazed, you know, and because Jesus spoke with authority. I mean, again, we're several years down the road and we know who Jesus is. Yes. But anybody else back to the human side would have to feel a little bit better after they do these and start thinking, look what I did. All I'm saying is it had to be difficult for those people. And, and it's also, to me, you know, they recognized the authority because the teachers of the law I don't think we've been, been misleading them in any way. Mm -hmm. Maybe not acting back to what I'm just saying, maybe taking more on themselves than what they deserve. Where do all these people come from? If, if they work six days a week and they're not supposed to do anything on the other, did Jesus only preach on the Sabbath, which would have got him in trouble all the time? Sure. Well, I was trying to figure out if they're always working, then... How did he, how did this group of people hear this on the Sermon on the Mount? So this is all one day. This is all one morning um, to them. This is all, this is, this has been one huge sermon. We just finished. That was amen, by the way, right there at the end of chapter seven it was all one morning. And it probably took less than my sermons do. You know, you think about it, that's a couple pages long. He's, he's sitting there talking to this group of people. They have this life-changing experience. And then, and then he sends them out in the world. Um, I think this is why Matthew goes from the Sermon on the Mount to, to, to the work of Jesus. It's like, I mean, the very next story in chapter 8 is like, I think he cleanses a leper um, right off the bat. And he goes straight for the, right for the jugular. Like, these are the bottom of the totem pole. Like, there is nothing lower than a leper at that time. Um, Stay away from it. 
And yeah, that's right. You're told to stay away from them. You're, you're, so they're, they're they the, got COVID they, or something. They, it's worse than COVID, right? You know, it's like, and, and how does that work? Well, we, we experienced part of that, but so there's a, there's a lot of scary stuff going on. And then he, he ends it by going and doing the work. Um, so the audience could have been on their lunch break. I just, I mean, just, you know, I'm sitting there amazed, you know, that they feed all of them and they're uh-huh. following him. Yeah. And then it's just like, okay, well, where'd they come from? I mean, yeah, it, it's easy enough for us to take a Saturday afternoon off and drive to Oklahoma City for a concert. Sure. It would not have been easy for them and not 5,000. I mean, no. That's a lot of people all of a sudden assembling in one area. That's right. That just the logistics is what just always baffled me, especially with the Romans going looking around going hey aren't you supposed to be doing something for me yeah and and there's a lot going on there um i guess it's just amazing to me that they could even put themselves in a position where they would be there i think the it shows the power is what i'm trying to say yeah the power the power of jesus is is the part that is making sense um, any more questions about the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew's got the long version, so um, so let's go. Let's go into this next part. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna, and it's gonna sound awful, but I'm gonna go through this fairly quickly. However, there are some Greek words specifically that I. I'm going to ask Sally to catch uh, just just for the simple fact, because some of these things, um, for example, Dr. Carter looks at these healing stories as the beginning and the creation of God's empire. And, and what he, he calls it is God's empire displayed in Jesus's actions. And, and so he, he does this. I mean, it's brilliant. I love how Dr. Card puts stuff together. But basically, um, for example, he's going he's to introduce this God's power. So he creates these miracle stories. Matthew does. So from verse 1 all the way to verse 27, there's a formula that he creates uh, for Jesus does. One of the Gospel of Matthew writer does about how God's empire is going to be displayed. So, for example, we have historical references of these miracle worker people. Um, one of these people in the first century was by the name of Apollonius. Uh, Philostratus writes about him, and uh, he's, he's a, again, he's a Roman uh, scholar that's talking. He's writing. We have writings of this Philostratus talking about Apollonius. Apollonius was a miracle worker, and and he was known as being um, prophetic, that he healed people, that he raised people from the dead. Um, He just did all of these crazy things that sounded just like Jesus. Um, So what Dr. Carter says is Matthew creates the formula. So he introduces the miracle worker. Then there's a crowd that appears, Someone that's sick shows up. Uh, 
then there's the representatives. Please, would you take care of this person? This is a part of my family. This is how this is happening. And then, and then there's, in this particular passage, there's a kneeling part where you prostrate, prostrate before God, um, like you would if you were praying, because now we're introducing God's empire. And then there's the, uh, oh, Jesus, please save us. Uh, Dr. Carter calls this the respective address, like, oh, God, our Lord, you know, our Savior. Um, and then there's a moment of trust. This is something that Dr. Carter pointed out that I've never taught in a Bible study, and I, and I, and I have failed at this. I, I want you to think about all of these healing stories before we get re start reading, because we're going to go through them fairly quickly. But think of the amount of trust it takes for somebody that has leprosy to have the courage to allow some total stranger to a either place their hands on them and b the trust that something good would happen or something would change um there's a tremendous amount of trust given to jesus in these healing stories human aspect of trust that nobody else has had apollonius philostratus is apollonius and everybody was afraid of him. They, they weren't, they didn't trust him. Jesus was different. Uh, the hemorrhagic woman, you know, that this, this, the trust that I'm going to touch his robe and things are going to change the, uh, what else we got here? We got the, he heals a whole bunch of people at Mary's house. He here uh, at Peter's house, he heals a centurion. I mean, like, just, just think of the amount of trust that's placed into that moment. And then the request of help happens. Um, and then there's a little bit of di discussion or distress. Uh, there's sometimes a conflict or opposition in, in, um, in the ways that these stories are told. But almost every single time, there's either a miracle by touch, word, even distance. Like Jesus doesn't even have to be close to them. He says, and now she's healed, Jairus's daughter, right? Um, and, and he's not even nearby. Uh, the report of the miracle to confirm. Matthew allows people to talk. Luke and Mark do not. Like when the miracles take place, I've done this, don't tell anybody. Yeah. Right? Matthew, the crowd has but they heard. always did. That's right. They absolutely <laughs> told people, but Jesus tells them not to specifically. I know. And Matthew, there's a little bit of that, but not as much as there I is. I think if he healed me. I'd be so grateful that I oh, would yeah. want to want to not. Well, it's so funny you should say that, Tammy. So why would that be so important if God was building an empire underneath Jesus? If you are so excited about this miracle and you tell people, what kind of following is Jesus going to have? Thrill seekers. Thrill seekers. What else? People who are genuinely curious. They've been beat up by the Roman Empire so far that this person gives them hope without any, any repercussions. Well, and possibly they could just make that's all it's all about. That's right. Our zealots, that our, our ruler has come, we need to follow him because he's gonna make an army. Well, we've got a Judas Iscariot, we've got to have him, you know. So there's so there's gonna be this audience that is getting built in Matthew is people that are those people. They're, they're, they're excited. They're nervous. They're ready. They've been waiting, you know, 
Um, so it makes sense that Matthew creates this empire automatically right off the bat with these miracle stories. Um, and then, and then uh, there's this moment, and then he dismisses them, and then, and then Matthew here commands them to secrecy, but they don't. They go off and tell people, and then this, the news spreads. Um, so notice the different the shift in the Gospel of Matthew here, right? So we've gone from the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what we believe. This is how we believe. This is what we should be doing. To Jesus going boom right into it. Now we're going to show you what God's empire really looks like. I'm going to heal a leper, the very bottom of the totem pole, right off the bat. Then I'm going to do the most unthinkable thing. I'm going to heal a centurion. If, I if I'm supposed to love my enemies, watch this. You know, uh, then, then if I'm supposed to, uh, to love all people at all times, right? Well, watch this. I'm going to heal a whole bunch of people at Peter's house. I'm going to then he goes into following uh, people that would be his followers. Then, as if that's not enough, in chapter 8, he steals a storm. He has the physical power of God's creation. If you don't create a dude that's going to lead the that lead God's empire uh, by this these first couple verses, uh, then you have failed. <laughs> Again, you know that the disciples were on overload. Right, the time you get to the calling of the right, right. You know, I, I've always thought that was my favorite part. Like you. They've gone through this sermon on the mountain. They're like, what is going on? What are we doing? Why are we following this guy? Oh, my gosh. He just healed a leper. What did he do? He just healed a centurion. What is going on? Now he's healed a whole bunch of people, and there's these people that are following. Let's just get on the boat and get away from everybody just for a little bit. Oh, my God. We're in a storm. <laughs> like, he commands the winds. <laughs> he commands the winds. Like, it's like, what is going on? I don't want to do this anymore. Jesus, we quit. You know? <laughs> Um, I think I'm in over my head. <laughs> I'm way in my head. And then he calms the storms. And what is it? There's a demoniac story. And then he, and as if that's not enough, he heals somebody that's paralyzed. So he has literally done the whole gambit in the whole chapter eight. And the disciples are going, Oh God, we quit. Like <laughs> everybody always, I give them a hard time way too much. Like the disciples have this thing where they just don't ever get it. But you're right, Karen. It's like, it's not that they don't get it. They're like, we're afraid to say anything different. Like we don't, we don't know what to do. We're just going to kind of follow along and make sure we don't say anything so that we don't get in trouble. <laughs> oh, I love this. So, so let's. Uh, oh my gosh, it's nine fifty four. So, um, let's uh, let's read to verse thirteen. Uh, I I want to get through the centurion servant at least uh, before we get into the other part because I I got to spend time on the. Uh, Galerian demoniacs, uh, or Gergesenes, or Gerasian uh, demoniac in verse 28. So I, don't, I want to spend time on that. So we'll do that next week. Here we go. Let's go. Chapter 8. When Jesus had come down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and there was a leper who came to, to him and knelt. See, there's that kneeling of your our emperor. Um, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I do choose uh, be made clean, and immediately his leprosy. What is the word there? It's lepra. Lepra. Okay, that's what it is. Lepra. Le lepra. Leprosy was clean, cleansed. Then Jesus said to him, "See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest, 
and offer the gift that Moses had commanded as a testimony to them. Go make a burnt offering, as in it says in Torah. Tell me that's not a Levitical insert. Um, is in, in a way, is Jesus teaching them to be humble too? Oh, it's not yeah. all about, look at me, look what I just did. Right. That's why, one of the reasons why he told them not to tell maybe. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and he's saying, look, we've, we've been doing this for centuries. Torah has always given you this ability. He doesn't take that away either. At the same time, you must be humble. Always be humble before God, because you're not God. I'm just a vessel of God, is what Jesus is saying. But you are the child of God. Be humble before that. That's why you go make this offering. So when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, appealing to him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible distress. And he said to them, I will come and cure him. The centurion answered, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only speak the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And, and I say to, to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this. And the slave does it. But when Jesus heard him, he was amazed and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, in no one... Uh, you should say not even, right? With no one. With no one. Okay. In, in Israel, have I found such faith? I tell you, many will come from east and west and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while their heirs of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness, thrown into the outer darkness, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yes. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you according to your faith. And the servant was healed in that hour. Um, well, he was nicer about it than probably what I would say if the centurion soldier had asked me. Uh, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is that distance thing, too. Like, it's, it's really weird why he's in there. I was trying to see if, if Dr. Carter put anything on this. And he says uh, in verse 6, that's just nothing really changed. I was trying to see if he had anything, you know, like this is why he used the centurion, but he <laughs> he, he just says he that say. he doesn't really. He, he says the centurion is an agent, uh, an enforcer of the imperial status quo, whether it's an agent of Rome or of Herod Antipas. He is stationed in Capernaum with troops, represent imperial control, enforce public order, blah, 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 blah. Yet Jesus' act is limited. While he heals a person enslaved by imperial power, power, he does not free him from slavery. Oh, there you go. In the Greek, it's child every time instead of slave. Or yeah, that's the other thing. He, he points out there. He says child and he says son. He said you could also translate that to son or child. So. Uh, mine says servant, not slave. Yeah, and mine says, uh, well, mine says slave. And then it's on here, it says servant can be used, but also child or slave or son. Isn't the healing from a distance, can't that be also the same as healing the slave of the centurion? I mean, the centurion is just as far away theologically right, or um, culturally as this slave may be from where Jesus is. Well, it, you can love him from afar. If, yes, if you, you can. 
look at it that way. Well, there's there's some uh, political power that happens from that too. You have a Roman centurion that, or a centurion for Herod Antipas that says, hey, can you heal my child, my son, my servant, whatever, uh, and he does it. Now you've got an ally st strategically. Um, so th there's some there's some really powerful things that are taking place here. I, actually, I'm going to read this last part, and then we're going to stop. Uh, so then right after that, Jesus then enters Peter's house. I don't know if it's the Peter. It's just a guy by the name of Peter. Everybody teaches it is, well, this is Simon Peter. Well, remember, Peter was a popular name. It was something that happened. Uh, I would think that Jesus would call a person away from his family. Yes, yeah. it immediately mentions his mother-in-law right off the bat. It'd be okay. like, "Hey, what's up, guy? I'm, I'm, I just told your son. Now I'm going to come to your house and kill a bunch of people." Uh, well, and when Jesus entered the house, he saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she got up and began to serve him. And that evening, they brought to him many who were possessed by demons, and he cast out with the with the spirits with the word and cured all who were sick. This was to fulfill what had been spoken in the prophet through the prophet Isaiah. He took our infirmity and bore our diseases, which is found in Isaiah uh, 53.4. That's it, 53.4. So, so um, that, that makes sense to me that they would have that in there in Matthew. You talked about the Levitical insert earlier. That would make sense to me, Old Testament. Uh -huh. I'm surprised that it stayed in. Oh yeah, in the New <laughs> Testament. I mean, well, I mean, they're mostly Jewish, you know. At, at this time, though. Yeah, but but you know, there's been other people touched it since then. Sure, there have. A lot of people have. Fever stricken has that poor word that was fire in like the other fire? place as as the beginning of it. So it's literally actual fever, like they were on yeah, fire. Hot. hot. That's fascinating. Well, we're going to stop there for the recording, uh, and we're going to pick up with verse 18. Um, Have you heard of asthenia as a disease? It means being weak and unable to do anything. It's what that word weakness is. is. Oh, yeah? Asthenaeus. Oh, that right there at that, that we just got done reading? Yeah, the mother-in-law? In 17, yeah. One place earlier when they were talking about leprosy, my Bible said that um Greek also used that just as skin disease. I mean, it could be specifically leprosy, or it could be any Old Testament skin too. disease. That's right. Could be eczema for all that mattered. Yeah. The ones they got exiled to live with leprosy, they got leprosy. That's right. Well, that's, yeah. No doubt. Yeah. No doubt. It's very, very get it one way or the other. So we'll pick up on verse 18 of chapter 8 next week. Okay.